Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. This is Sarah Reese from New Society Publishers. We are big fans of the Abundant Edge podcast. Oliver's guests talk about so many of the same topics that we publish on, and he talks with a lot of our authors too. We're proud to be a sponsor of this podcast that is doing such valuable work spreading the word about how to create a finer future together. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. If you're looking for solutions-oriented books, please visit our online store at newsociety.com, other online retailers, or visit a fine bookstore near you. Are you the owner or promotions manager for a regenerative business or organization looking to get your message out to a larger audience? Finding your target audience for regenerative products and services can be tough, especially while the movement is still in its infancy and awareness around the importance of ethical business still has a long way to go. So if you want to tap into a network of informed and motivated people with strong environmental and community ethics who vote with their purchases, then you've come to the right place. The Abundant Edge podcast now has more than 30,000 monthly listeners around the world and is growing fast. These are listeners who are actively involved in the regeneration of our planet and are enthusiastically supporting businesses and projects that reflect their priorities. We now offer competitive sponsorship packages for single episodes and discounted rates for multiple episodes, social media campaigns, promotional videos, and more. The best part is that all your investment goes straight into making this podcast the best resource for regenerative skills education that it can be. Because of our commitment to the integrity of our message and our affiliations, this offer is only open to businesses and organizations that are as committed to regenerative work as we are. If this sounds like a good fit for you, go to the show notes for this episode to fill out the collaborator application form. We look forward to helping you reach your highest potential. My guest in this session is Andrew Mefford, who worked for seven years in the research department of Johnny's Selected Seeds and has traveled around the world to connect with farmers and researchers about greenhouse growing and soil conservation. He then started his own farm in Maine to apply all of that knowledge and experience, which he writes about and curates as the editor for Growing for Market magazine too. Now in this episode, Andrew and I talk about his new book, The Organic No-Till Farming Revolution. We begin by identifying the systemic problem that industrial agriculture, specifically with its reliance on soil tillage, has caused, and the massive losses of topsoil and the nutrient degradation that has resulted from this ubiquitous practice. From there, Andrew breaks down the four no-till gardening methods that he'd seen used successfully in his travels and research. We cover in-depth mulch grown in place, cardboard mulch, deep straw mulch, and deep compost mulch as well as the pros and cons of each method and how to choose the no-till methods that work best for your context. Andrew also explains how soil health ties in with climate stability, small farm profitability, and much more. Now this is the first in a two-part series with Andrew because all the knowledge that he shared was best split into two to avoid going too long. So don't forget to catch Friday's conclusion of this interview and two more soil building episodes in this month's focus look at building market gardening soil. Now, before I get too long-winded, I'll turn things over to Andrew. Hey, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Oliver. 
No, the pleasure's all mine. Now, I've got a ton of questions to ask you about no-till organic farming methods, but before we jump too much into the meat of the questions, could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you got started? I know you have a fantastic story of sort of giving a try to these no-till methods and then taking a large hiatus and finding your way back to it. So how did you first become passionate about farming? Well, um, I... I um I got interested in no-till by working on farms. So I should tell everybody I I did not grow up on a farm. In fact, I I grew up in in suburbia in uh in northern Virginia, not too far outside of Washington D.C. But I had a farm one generation back in my family that my my grandma um still owned, and so that I I think that was part of my entry into farming. And so um I the way that I learned to farm was by working for other people. Um, we call it do, doing the apprentice circuit. And um, people may be familiar the way that a lot of people learn farming who didn't grow up on farms is go work for other farmers who are willing to offer apprenticeships, which usually I- include some mix of work on the farm and, and actual teaching and learning opportunities related to farming. And so um, that's what I did. In fact, um I worked on a farm in Pennsylvania, and then um, I worked out in California for a while. And then I, I was working on a really large farm in uh, in Washington State, not too far away from Seattle. So the, to me, what a large farm is, it was about a hundred acres of vegetables. Okay, so even if it wasn't um, even if it wasn't a, actually a hundred acres of vegetables, it was eighty acres of veg and maybe twenty acres of cover crops or something like that, including ten or twenty acres of potatoes. But that's a lot of to me, that's a lot of vegetables. And so I was working on this big organic farm and uh, just spent a lot of time cultivating because it, when you're organic and you don't have other ways to control the weeds and you have a lot of weeds, <laughs> you end up cultivating a lot, which in a way was great because I got really good at driving a tractor. On the other hand, I'm not an equipment person. I'm I'm a plant person. What What really drew me to agriculture was was uh, working with plants and 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 um, understanding how they grow, and uh, you, you know, as as a grower, your job is really to make your plants happy, and it's you have to learn learn what makes the plant happy. And I really was not lear- interested in learning how to take carburetors apart and you know fix the tractor when it didn't start and that kind of thing. So. So I think that's one of the real benefits of of doing an apprenticeship if you don't have a farm background is because it it allows you to realize what you like or don't like about uh, about the farming uh before you're you're own the farm and are running the farm. And so um this was 15 years ago that I was working out in Seattle and so at that time if you searched um no-till online the main thing that you would come up with is the sort of Rodale system of no-till, uh, uh, people call it the roller crimper system, um, and we can talk about the actual method uh, a little bit later. Um, there's there is a lot more information now than than there used to be. So, um, 15 years ago, I was I was looking around because I had heard people mention no-till, but 
it, it was hard for me to even imagine ha- having worked on farms that um, even though they were organic, they took a more conventional approach to tillage as far as if you were getting ready to plant something, you are probably doing some combination of moldboard plowing, disking or other harrowing, and then um, rototilling and, and potentially other other um, tillage also to, to get the soil ready. So that's you know, to me, that's one of the most um, equipment intensive parts of the whole farm is is just getting the soil ready. In fact, when we we did finally start a farm on uh, on on the the family land there in Pennsylvania, um, we bought a much larger tractor than we really needed, simply because we thought we were going to have to mold bird plow it, which which we did. Um, so. Um, but, but what I was looking to get away from was all this equipment uh, intensive um, work. And so I looked up um, no-till online and I noticed that in addition to the Rodale Institute who and the USDA, uh, the National Resource Conservation Service has done a lot of research um, with Rodale and some of the, the public land grant universities. So... Um, what I saw was that one of the universities that was working with Rodale in the NRCS was there was this one professor at uh, Virginia Tech named Ron Morse. And he, the two things that he was studying were farmscaping, so planting, um, planting different uh, beneficial attracting plants to, uh, to attract uh, beneficials. And the other thing he was studying was no-till, organic no-till agriculture. And so um, at the time, what I was doing is I was going back and forth from um, working on farms in the summertime to going back to the Virginia, Northern Virginia area where I had a job that would take me back every winter because I was trying to work in the wintertime and make some money so I could eventually start a farm. And so I thought, well, I'll just give this guy at, uh, at Virginia Tech a ring. I, th- I think I actually emailed him first. And, and just saying, hey, I'm going to be in Virginia. Can I can I pick your brain about what you're doing with no-till? And he said, sure, come on down. And I ended up uh, working for him uh, because um, he wanted somebody who was interested in what he was doing to help carry out the the field studies. So what they were doing is they would do these these experiments where they would prepare a field uh, with with sort of conventional organic tillage. As far as as using plows and rototillers and everything, and then they would use the 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 roller crimper uh, mulch grown in place type of no till and compare the two treatments, right? Because they were they would they would get these grants and you know they would they would want an answer to the question of uh, can you be as productive with organic no till as with um, conventional organic tillage, and um, in most cases y- you you could be. Um, so that, that ended up being a great experience because, because Ron is a great guy. And so I worked for one year at the, uh, Virginia Tech at one of their experimental research farms, essentially helping them carry out their research in the field as a way for me to learn the system. And so that was, that was a great learning experience. Really, the only drawback was that I, I realized that the, that method of no-till it does not um, it does not scale down very well. And the, the first farm that I started was on three acres of, of land that we rented from uh, from my grandma. And so like most small uh, diverse farms, we just had multiple planting windows. We had succession planting and um, 
And the, the roller crimper type no-till, otherwise known as uh, the mulch grown in place no-till, is really better for bigger bigger blocks of planting. It's great for a no-till pumpkin patch. It's great if you're going to grow a big block of no-till tomatoes or something like that. But it doesn't really scale down very well to your small, diverse farm that may be planting um, a succession of, of salad mix every, every single week and things like that. So... Um, Really what happened is I, I kind of forgot about no-till for almost 15 years now. So um, because when it, when it didn't work for us, we just went back to tilling just like, like everybody that we worked for had done. And, um, you, you know, life goes on, right? You start a farm, you have kids, you deal with the day-to-day. And I'd really kind of forgotten about no-till because I wasn't using it on a day-to-day basis. And then um, – in 2016, I took over editing Growing for Market magazine. And within that first year, we started having a few stories um, that were pitched to us about the new farmer-developed methods for doing no-till that required less equipment and could be done on a smaller scale. And so so we published these, these articles and I thought, wow, these farmers have figured out how to do what I was trying to do f- 15 years ago. And so I I have a farm here in central Maine and I thought, um, well, I want to use these techniques too. I want to get back to what I, what I really wanted to do in the first place. And when I, when I hunted around for more information, um, about how to really implement the techniques, there really wasn't a whole lot out there. There's an odd article here or there in Growing for Market or somewhere like that, but there wasn't really a uh, there wasn't a how to. There wasn't a there wasn't a complete way of understanding the systems. And so um, I I decided to try to write the book that I I wished um, that I could have worked from in the, in the first place. But I also thought that, and that, that's what led it to be an interview based book because there are several different ways of doing no till. And, um, I figured no one person is doing all of them. And so I had some experience with the, the roller crimper or the mulch grown in place type of no till, but I didn't have experience with, with the other, the other, um, techniques that most people were, were using for small scale no till. And so, so what I did is, is I, I contacted everyone that I could find, um, who was doing no till. And of course, there are other people out there. I, of course, I didn't get to everybody because we had a certain, um, we had a certain time frame to do the interviews in. But I tried to get a nice mix of different methods in different parts of the country and things. And, um, so, so what I ended up doing was taking trips and visiting growers whenever possible, visiting them on their farms. And, um, and so I could really see what they were actually doing. And it was just an amazing journey as far as, you know, every farm I would go to, I would be like, oh, this is great. And it's what they're doing is so inspiring. And then it would happen all over again. I would go to the next place because because people, the people that I interviewed were so um, generous with their own time and information. Um, in fact, every single person who I contacted about being a part of the book said yes. And, and, and let me bug them at the busy part of their season, right? Because I wanted to come to their farms in the middle of the season when they were busy, but also when they were growing things so I could see exactly what they were doing. And so everybody ultimately ended up saying yes and sharing their great experience and, and ideas, which, which I'm really grateful for because, of course, without, without the growers who, di- who participated in the interviews for the book, there would be no book. So 
but it was just a magnificent journey as far as it, it was really inspiring just to meet so many people who were in most cases doing something kind of different from what their neighbors were doing. And in most cases, they, they had innovated part of it themselves as well. So um, that is where that's really is how the book came together is by doing the book is a series of 17 interviews, plus an introduction, sort of an overview of, of the different methods. Um, and then and then we kind of get into the nitty gritty of it with with the individual growers of how how they're actually making these these systems work. And um, in, in many cases, they're they're actually they're actually very high production. Uh, they really make the most of a smallish piece of land, and and in many cases they're they're at uh, they're as much or less work than than the the um, doing say a tillage based agriculture on the same the same amount of ground. So so that's what I love about it is they're efficient, they're profitable, and they 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 um, they really reduce the amount of of uh, machinery that that would be necessary to to get started, because you know my. My vision for agriculture, as far as being the editor of a of a of a, a magazine for small farmers and and someone who wants to uh, to see a better world, is I, I want to see a, a more diverse, more um, decentralized network of, of smaller farmers. If you think about it, a majority of the food that Americans eat right now, of the vast majority, is coming from really big operations, which are not very. Um, are not very resilient, really, when you think about it. Um, if if the cons- the if the uh, production of any certain crop is is focused on on a particular particular part of the country where that that crop you, you know grows the cheapest or grows the best, uh, when we have when we have weather disruptions, um, it can really it can really create disruptions in the market. And it, and I think one thing that farmers are seeing everywhere is the weather's just getting weirder. And I think we'd be a lot better off if we had a more decentralized, more localized food system. And so as far as a system, as far as these systems allowing people to start without all that machinery, I feel like that's very important as far as, as lowering the barriers to people starting farms. Because the, the barriers that I see to most people who want to start farms are access to land and access to the capital and equipment to, to farm that land. And so um, just just getting land is, is hard enough. So to have to buy a tractor or other, other pieces of equipment on top of that is just daunting for, for growers who start out. And so the only way we're going to get more small farmers as for some people who are not farmers to, to become farmers. So I feel like, I feel like no-till is a good, is sort of a good gateway method because if, if you have some land, I mean, really, you can even do this on your lawn. Uh, you know, people can do this on whatever whatever size they have, and you know, and some people, you know, many people may be interested in in doing it, and not not necessarily for a commercial farm. You know, they may just want to feed themselves, feed their community, or something like that. So, so the, the you know, the beauty of these systems is that they can be very productive on very small scale, and you don't you don't need to invest a whole lot in in equipment, and and so. Um, that, that's what I love about these systems. And, and one other thing that wasn't as apparent to me when I was originally getting in no, interested in no-till, mostly for the, the benefit of reducing mechanization, was that I, I also want to reduce my own fossil fuel usage, right? So if I'm, if I require less machinery, I can use less fossil fuels. And then 
Another thing that I've become increasingly concerned about is is simply is is climate change. You know, I've got a I've got a five year old and a seven year old, um, and I want I want them to have a world when when they grow up. And so, uh, a lot of the carbon that's in the atmosphere has actually been um, released by agriculture. It's a lot of people don't know this, and I did not know how much carbon was in the atmosphere as a as a result of tillage, but. Over over the the um the course of human agriculture, uh, the regular way of of just tilling everything up, um, part of that part of the reason that tillage is effective is because it, uh, stirring the soil and introducing unnaturally large amounts of oxygen um, into the soil it does stimulate a short term release of fertility at the long term expense of long term fertility and uh, and soil health because. What you're doing is is when you when you uh, blend that oxygen into the soil, it it uh, bonds with the carbon that's in the soil and is released as carbon dioxide. And so uh, we are we are burning up the organic matter in our soil through tillage and putting it into the um, into the atmosphere, which is is bad bad for both the soil and the atmosphere, because carbon carbon in organic matter more broadly uh, is so important for soil health. Um, I, I've come to view tillage very much like a drug addiction where, um, tillage, tillage creates a short term, a short term, um, release of fertility at the expense of the long term health of the soil. And then you, you, you get into these, um, these, these destructive cycles where, well, you need to reduce, you need to release fertility again. And so you till again and you, you stir up a new batch of weed seeds. And so you have a new flush of weeds and then you have to cultivate again. And it's, it's really just a cycle. And I think that's why so many of the organic growers that I've talked to, even though they may be cover cropping and adding compost and things like that, their level of organic matter will stay flat or even go down over time, even when they're doing best practices like the like cover cropping. And so, uh, I really do see no-till as as a um, as a way for growers to get out of those dest- destructive cycles where of just doing more and more destruction to try to, to remedy the effects of the the destruction over time. So um, I think I think I think that's why uh, we're seeing so much interest in no-till. In fact. That's it's one thing. Um, it, we've probably had more interest as far as uh, the magazine goes. We've probably had more interest in the stories that we've run on no till um, than anything else in the three or so years that I've been um, been running the magazine. So I think that's why we've. I think we've reached a critical mass point where people, uh, you know, for years, for years, you would hear tillage is bad. You know, till as little as you possibly could, but there were no there were no real solutions for how to just stop tilling altogether. And so I think that that having heard this for years, that's why people have um, developed these systems and why the people who aren't using them are so interested in them, because they know that there's a lot to be gained by not tilling at all or even really reducing tillage. I, I think it's important to say, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's not an orthodoxy. It's not like it's not like I. I I realize not every single person who listens to this podcast maybe is going to go down to zero tillage, but the strategies that that these growers are using that we talk about in the book can be used to reduce the the level of tillage. You you could have a modified system, and I think I think most growers know anything they can do to reduce 
uh, tillage is going to help them out in the long run. So even if the even if the ideas in the book just help people reduce the amount of tillage that they're doing, I think that there's going to be a lot of benefits both the individual grower and and, and our world as far as 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 degrading the soils less and um and releasing less less carbon dioxide through agriculture. Man, I love it. And it seems to me like if I could repeat some of those main points to make sure I got them, some of the main benefits of no-till is the reduction of equipment and fossil fuel use on any scale of farm, whether small or large. And it's healthier for the soil because it leaves the bacteria and some of the dormant weed seeds sort of in the soil and in an, in a way that will... The, the bacteria is healthy and thriving in that area and the weed seeds remain dormant to prevent that sort of flush up again. And it creates a lot more organic matter in the soil, especially over time. Uh, and, and with the decrease in, in needs from fossil fuels and equipment, that's a decrease on labor in general, whether you're doing it by hand or by machine. So it does fly a little bit in the face of what a lot of us were taught about soil cultivation which is that aeration of soil is essential for the health of the root system of the plants below. How does that accommodate that sort of wisdom within a no-till method? Yeah, well, that's that's a that's a good question, Oliver. Um, and yeah, definitely the <laughs> the conventional wisdom on this is that you can't not till. And so um, there's there's a couple ways that that growers are dealing with this and. Um, so a lot of growers, a lot of growers are using a broad fork or something like that, basically a uh, or even just a um, the kind of fork that people would dig roots with. And so wh- what they'll do, which is in line with the the way that I'm familiar with people usually using a broad fork, is simply to put it in the soil and kind of lever it back to, um, and that that will introduce some air in the soil and just kind of loosen things up without inverting the soil layers and 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 um and churning it because um one of the things that that's particularly destructive to the soil is just the if you think about how a moldboard plow works or even even more violent really is is a rototiller you know it's basically a giant egg beater on the soil and so yeah the bacteria but um the bacteria are vulnerable to mechanical destruction during tillage, but what's especially vulnerable to mechanical destruction during tillage is the the fungal networks. And uh, most of us have heard um, about how most plants there's there are some groups of plants like the brassicas do not form uh, mycorrhizal relationship with with fungus, but most plants um, form form. Uh, relationships with various types of fungus that are are beneficial to the plant and the fungus. Uh, the best known example of that is inoculating um, the seeds of legumes with nitrogen-fixing bacteria. But there, there are a lot of different fungus that will form uh, relationships with plants um, there are some there are some good resources out there if people are more interested in that where the the fungus gets some sugars from the plant roots and the, the fungus will act in, uh, the fungus will help transport nutrients and things to the plant but because the the fungal the 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 so the mycorrhizae are basically fungal roots so it's a long it's a long um it's a long root-like system. So, of course, every time you plow or rototill, you're destroying the fungal networks that are there in the soil. And so uh, that that's one thing is that um, you with a lot of tillage, you tend to develop a bacteria-heavy soil because you're killing off 
uh, even though you're killing all the soil life, you're especially killing off the fungus. And so, and most people believe that, that, that the best vegetable growing soils are closer to a 50 50 ratio of bacteria and fungi. And so, and that's just what you're doing with, with the repeated tillage, you're creating a bacterial, bacteria heavy soil. Because you, you, you churn everything up and then the bacteria that survive kind of feed on the carnage that you've just, you just created. And, and so, um, people who are trying to develop, uh, beneficial fungus, uh, in their soil will, it'll be easier for them if they're not, um, churning it up every, every, um, every year, multiple times a year. So, so one way to deal with the aeration is the broad fork. And another way is simply by not compacting the soil in the first place. Uh, not every single person that I have talked to uses a broad fork. And so some of them, what they've just done is that they've built, they've built soil that's so high in organic matter. Um, and so, uh, and so naturally well aerated that they don't need to broad fork it because um, it, organic matter is is one of the things that makes that opens up soil makes it uh, more crumbly and um, it, it also the organic matter really helps with the infiltration of um, of water and it helps a lot with the the uh, water holding capacity of a soil one thing one th common theme with a lot of growers that I talked to they said that they're their need to irrigate went down after they um, started going no-till and um, their resilience in a drought w was much better than their neighbors because because they had mm, yeah, built these imagine. yeah yeah they had built these soils that were so high in organic matter the organic matter is basically a sponge so so they just built this really spongy soil and so um, I think that that you know that's one way to get a, around the aeration now the problem may be if you start out with really bad soil um, it may you you may need to use a broad fork to to keep loosening it up unless you unless you put a really heavy application of compost or some other mulch that's high in organic matter um, to get started with because it, you know it I, I guess I guess it's a drawback but one of the it's worth noting one of the drawbacks of the uh, of the no till systems is that they tend to, they're not overnight systems in the way that you could you could look at a, a, a hay field it's not really ideal but if you really wanted to you could go out pl plow it up and and um, you know plow and rotor till and have turn a grassy field into something you could plant with vegetables f fairly quickly um, most of these no till systems they work better over time they're, you know, that's what i mean is they're not they're not overnight fixes most of them uh most of them work better the longer that you've been doing them uh, in fact I, I was looking back through the book the other day and and i there was a part that i had kind of forgotten about um where i said that uh most of the conventional systems particularly the conventional um uh conventional systems that involve a lot of sprays and things they really work uh they work in spite of any any soil biology. Um, you know, really, they they look uh, from they look at the soil almost as just a something to hold the plants, and they use chemicals, uh, the addition of chemicals to keep plants growing. Whereas these no-till systems, um, instead of working in spite of the biology, these no-till systems work because of the biology, and so. Um, 
a lot of them if you if you have dead soil so if you have soil that's been that's been plowed too much that's really low in organic matter that's been had a lot of chemicals sprayed on it and and is it, you have really kind of dead non-functioning soil it may take a few years before um before things are really um firing on all cylinders uh as far as the no-till system working uh working as well as it could but I also say that as much so people persevere uh, and realize that that things are going to get better if you know whether they're starting from scratch or whether they're converting an existing farm system to no till. Um, the, the, these systems tend to get better over time. So maybe one of the one of the best illustrations of of this is um, when I was out at, at Bear Mountain Farm in Oregon. Um, they're a flower farm, and um, so they one of the differences that I noticed um, and that the flower growers pointed out is that one of the things that that some uh, that a lot of vegetable growers in general make use of and um, and no-till growers in, in in specific is really quick rotations of of, sh- of short season crops and so what I mean by that is let's say salad mix is a really good example of that uh, you know you might be able to plant plant a bed of salad mix and be harvesting it within 30 days. So w- within a month, you can go from seed or transplant to harvest on, say, salad mix. And so and one of the dynamics that 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 um, that no-till growers use to make the most of of um, of those kind of short rotation crops is a lot of them because they don't have to stop to 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 plow a bed up after after let's say let's say the first rotation of salad mix is done for the season uh, on a normal farm you would probably um, rototill that and and maybe do another couple passes of tillage before you're ready to plant again. Well. More than one of the no-till farms that I visited with, they have they have this uh, kind of almost a metric where they want to be they they try to replant beds the very same day because what they'll do is they'll they'll cut out a previous crop you know, so they'll let's say you know doesn't matter what the crop is whatever crop they have there they'll try to they'll remove the old crop and then. Um, do whatever their bed prep is. Let's say put down some compost and broad fork, and they'll try to replant that same bed uh, the very same day. And so one of the one of the things that helps no-till growers who are using that type of model be profitable is that they're they have they're taking zero days off for tillage, and so they're just planting one succession of a crop. One one right after another. So this is pretty common for vegetable growers doing salad mix or radishes or salad turnips or in, you know anything that can that can be uh, planted and then turned around and flipped uh, to another crop really quickly. But uh, multiple of the flower growers that I talked to, uh, they they mentioned that there there's no such thing as a thirty day flower crop, and so. Um, for example, I, I I was out at at, at Bear Mountain Farm in Oregon last uh, October, so a year, a year and a half ago. Uh, at the end of October, their season was about to wind down, so I was walking around with them, and they, so they showed me a bed of flowers that had been harvested, and the the crop was done, but there was the, all the stalks and um, the the plant the plants from the previous crop were still there on the bed, and. One of the things that I love about what they did is they simply took a tarp and they just they just um, knocked knocked the stalks that were still standing in the bed down and then just tarped the whole bed down. 
And because they, this was a flower farm and they, there wasn't, there wasn't some, you know, let's see, they're in October. There's not some 30 day crop that they can just stick in there right at the end of the season. They had no time pressure. So they just put a tarp down over the remainder, the remaining, um, the remaining debris from the previous crop and walked away. And it was just beautiful. It was so, their system is so simple. Their system for, their system for renovating that bed was, Put a tarp on it and let and and just let the let the um let the soil life break it down for them. In fact, they have they had a name for them. They called them their ground peeps. They're like they you know they see, they see that the um the microorganisms in the soil as their their littlest workers essentially. So so the way that works, it, it, I mean, I feel almost silly explaining it, but but what they did is is that they would just tarp down tarp down the bed that they were done growing in. And simply leave it over the winter time, and it probably helps that they have a fairly mild winter. And so all the earthworms and all the little, all the little microorganisms in the soil would work to uh, would break down that plant matter over the winter, so that by the time they got back the next, the following spring, and were ready to plant that bed, there was hardly anything on it. They could basically. Um, just apply compost and fertilizer and then plant into that bed again. It's one of those things where it's, it's like, it's the, where the simplest solution is the best one. You know, if you can just, if you can just take a tarp and put it down on the bed and let that prepare your bed, why wouldn't you do that? But my, my point about these systems getting better over time is that, um, talking to them, I realized they, they've been doing this for a number of years. They already have, um, their beds are already fairly high in organic matter and they have really, they have really healthy soil life because they, they haven't been, they haven't been tilling it and they haven't been spraying chemicals on it. So, so they have, they have a really healthy, um, they really have a really healthy uh, microbial community going on in their soil. Uh, to break that stuff down because um, that's that's a point that I made to them and they agreed with uh, if you took let's say a tired out old piece of farmland that was low in organic matter had been sprayed for many years and was the soil was pretty dead you might not be able to do that um, y- y- because they were they were relying on the soil um, the soil life to break the to break their crop residue down if you didn't have very much soil life that might not work so I think that's worth pointing out especially for people who are getting started that um, it might um, if, if if you had really dead soil that some of these techniques won't won't work the best the first year and that they they will require some patience and that they'll get better and better as 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 people use them well i guess the next thing i would have to ask then is what would be your advice for someone in that situation with depleted soil or a lot to sort of come back from to transition into productive soil within the least amount of time possible because i know that that's key for many people starting a new farm enterprise that switching into a state of production and and profit is kind of make or break whether they can continue to do that for any period of time yeah yeah that's that's a really great question i'm glad you asked it oliver so um my my suggestion for someone who's looking to get up and be productive with these systems as quickly as possible is to um decide what method they're going to use but Pretty much all of them could benefit, if, especially if your soil to start out is bad. Um, in st- take the money uh, that you are going to invest in equipment and invest in some some really good compost or or make your own, uh, because 
the the way that most of these systems work um, so that you can it almost doesn't matter how bad your soil is is most of these systems are you're ba- you're building your own soil on top of the on top of the um, the soil that's there and so um, that's that's why um, in, instead of you know it can be really frustrating to to if you if you t- have bad soil and take a little bit of compost out and apply the compost and then rototill it in it looks almost like you didn't do anything it, you know if you if you do have really uh, really dead soil that's low in organic matter and so I would say that almost all of these systems require more compost than most than most farm systems do but that's also a really quick way um, to improve your soil instead of trying to blend let's say some really nice compost into some really bad soil if you just put the compost on top and start building up um, you can you can have really um, you can have really good results and I think you know one question a lot of people have asked is that because these systems are using so much more compost than is conventional even in organic systems people are worried about um, runoff and 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 nutrient leaching and things like that and um, I think that these no-till growers are not having so much nutrient leaching uh, because they're also not tilling. I think that, I think it's true that it's, you have to be concerned what is being washed off of your farm into the waterways. Um, and you know, we don't, we don't want to be leaching nutrients, um, into the waterways where they don't need to be. We want to keep the nutrients up where we're trying to grow, grow crops. But I also think that most of the assumptions around compost usage, uh, are that you're going to be tilling it in. And so, and that's yet another benefit of no-till is that it, that if you're not tilling, um, if you're not tilling your fields, it reduces the amount of re- erosion. And so, um, there's less, um, there's less of your, of your compost and nutrients that are, are washing away if you, if you, if you put it in place and, and leave it in place. And so, um, I think that would be the, the, the tip for people is to invest in some really good compost. In fact, some of the, some, more than one of the growers that I talked to, they will make a high carbon version of compost. And so by that, uh, the practical way to do that would be to take, uh, what, you know, whatever, whatever, um, materials that you're already composting. People usually divide the materials that are being composted into sort of green, green high nitrogen matter. And so the green stuff would be like fresh grass clippings or animal manures or things like that. So things that have a lot of fertility and then brown materials. So leaves, straw, um, any, anything else that has, is high in carbon, but, um, is, is, does not have a whole lot of nitrogen. And so that's why a, a lot of the, you, you know, you can make compost with so many different materials, so many different recipes. It's not important to get into what the actual recipe is. The, the idea is, um, the idea is that you can make a more regular compost that, that is a, like a hot compost that, that composts pretty quickly. Or you can also make uh, a high nitrogen compost. Uh, the basic idea uh, is that you're adding more of the brown materials. Okay, so leaves, straw. Um, and, and this is where I know, I know this is a permaculture podcast. I know permaculture is a lot about looking, looking around you and making use of the, making use of the materials that are in your, in your local area that may be free. And so, um, 
a lot, you know, a lot of areas have have some kind of agriculture or industry going on that's generating uh, high carbon waste products. I've seen people using nutshells, um, using leaves, uh, using wood chips. They're a byproduct, you know, all different kinds of things. And so um, that's one way that people could cheaply make. Uh, let's say a high carbon compost that could be uh, that could be a really valuable component for these systems because it's true um, once you once you started using a lot of compost um, you don't you don't need to add so much compost um, year to year um, it, you know it, it's it's definitely possible to get too much of a good thing right if you uh what i'm talking about here is some of these growers so let's say to start a no-till bed they'll go out there and put down four to six inches of compost and so that's what i mean you know a lot of people you tell a lot of people oh yeah i'm gonna go out and, and apply four to six inches of compost and they'd be like whoa that's that's way too much but what they're really doing is they're just building their own soil and uh, you know if if you're building on soil that's low in fertility and low in organic matter you might need f- 4 to 6 inches of compost to both um establish the fertility of the bed to to grow that crop and and then also that compost acts as a mulch and keeps keeps weed seeds and other things uh perennials and things like that from coming up from below but over time uh you 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 are not going to need to add four to six compo- in- inches of compost every single year, but a, a lot of people uh, still like to add compost as a mulch, and so that's where that's where making this this high carbon compost uh, comes in. Is that way you can keep you can keep adding compost as a mulch. You can keep increasing your amount of organic matter without. Uh, without increasing uh, or overdoing your your nutrients, which is really is is really a, a, a um, possibility with with um, with compost. Uh, typically, what we see on farms that use a lot of compost is that um, gradually the 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 phosphorus will become too high. Uh, that's a pretty that's a pretty common pattern of of, of farms that uh, are in heavy compost usage. That's why our our recommendation to farms is to add enough add just enough compost to satisfy the the um the uh phosphorus needs of the soil and if you need additional nitrogen or potassium or other micronutrients don't get those uh, those things from compost get get other um, sources of fertility to address the nitrogen and the potassium because because if you just if you do all your fertility from compost you are sooner or later you're probably going to get a um, get a a uh, phosphorus uh, an, an overabundance of phosphorus which that's the kind of statement people may be thinking well that sounds you know how can I have too much of a good thing I need all the phosphorus that I can get well maybe but uh, most most nutrients. If you have too much of any one nutrient, it, they will start blocking up uh, the absorption of other nutrients. And so that's why that's why um, if people really if if adding a lot of compost to their system is uh, is part of people's plans, they they want to think about either making or sourcing uh, a high a high carbon compost. Um, and, you know, this is this is the point where people can think about as well. Do they want to do every little thing? Do they want to do the farming, and do they also want to make their own compost? Or, it's in a lot of areas there are composters, um, and some of them will uh, either may already be making 
uh, a high nitrogen, uh, sorry, a high com- a high carbon compost, or they might make a custom, uh, you know, a custom blend with extra wood chips or extra um, extra leaves or something like that. Um, to to so that you can keep adding a lot of organic matter in the form of compost without overdoing it on the nutrients because that's really the difference between between the 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 compost that people are normally making that is is fairly fertile and a high a high carbon compost will be giving you the organic matter without as much fertility and so uh, in, one of the best. Uh, illustrations of of being able to add a lot of compost, I think, is is what I saw it on uh, on singing singing frogs farm out in California, because uh, they 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 use a fair amount of compost to maintain their beds. Um, it's, it's it's so they they're not they're never tilling them. They're basically uh, taking out the previous crop and then putting on a putting on a light application of compost and fertilizer and just replanting right into the um the bed so they're not you know they're 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 not reforming beds or anything and so their 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 model of no-till has attracted a lot of of attention and there is this article written about them called the drought fighters which plays into that the thing about how their soil is holding so much more uh water because they have so much more uh organic matter in the soil in a very in a very um uh a part of the country where water is very scarce right there in california and so um they 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 were working with this journalist on this article called the drought fighters and um they were calling in all these various ag experts and things and they they told me that they they were telling them that they're they they were just adding too much compost and they were going to be leaching nutrients uh, onto, uh, you know, off the property and, and such like that. And so they said, okay, well, let's, let's test it. And so they, they tested the water coming onto their farm. They tested the water on their farm and then they tested the water running off of their farm. And what they found was that the water, the water running off of their farm was about the same or if anything, a little bit, had a little bit less nutrients in it than the water running onto their farm. Wow. Yeah, even even though they they were applying what uh, probably a lot of sort of conventional ag experts would say is too much compost, the fact that they were not tilling it up was was keeping it from eroding, keeping it in place, and their land was actually mm. sponging up those nutrients. And, that makes sense. Not to mention the water. So so that's that was a really that's a good example uh, where they really did their homework and and found out that their their system is really working as far as sequestering those nutrients. Uh, but they 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 found uh, you know they could have too much of a good thing as well because they were adding you know just adding compost year after year and if memory serves they told me that they got up to about 14% compost or sorry 14% organic matter in their soil uh which is really high you know if m- most most people uh m- i think most people who are farming are probably getting a soil test that's that's bringing back a uh organic matter number in the the single digits um you know and i i would say that a um of, of soils that haven't been taken care of that have been tilled a lot tend to be in the low low single digits right so for them to be sure. 14% organic matter is is very very high from most people's perspectives and so they got they got to the point where they said that um their soil because of this their soil was so light and fluffy that some of their larger framed plants like like brassicas uh, broccoli and and cabbages and things like that when they would get a really strong wind some of their plants would actually t- 
tip over um, the, and the roots would pull out of the soil because the soil was so light and fluffy. And so, oh, wow. so they found that they, they actually, they tailed off on their compost applications and they have simply by not adding as much compost, their soil has come back down to around, uh, I think they're, I believe they said they're, they're maintaining around a 10% organic matter level, which I think is, is a good, is a really good, um, would be a really good target for anybody. Um, in sort of an answer of how much how much organic matter is too too much organic matter, I think probably probably for most people, yeah, fourteen or fifteen percent, you might might be a little too high. And that you know, if you could maintain, um, if 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 you can do what they're doing and maintain around a ten percent organic matter level, you're 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 doing a great job, and and your plants will be will be happy just because. Um, Organic matters is so important um, in so many ways that if you can get it up that high, it's really just going to help with nutrient availability. Um, the soil, it's going to help with the soil being alive because a lot of what those the microorganisms in the soil are feeding off is decaying organic matter. So if you have a 10% organic matter level in your soil, there's lots of food uh, for for the uh, for the the soil life there. And um, and of course, then it then it helps with the the infiltration and the the sponging up of of water, and so so y- it you, your crops will will tend to be well watered too, if um if you have that high of an organic matter. So um so that's uh, I can imagine that loose fluffy soil also promotes root growth a lot too, and the ability to get down into the deeper layers and mine for minerals and nutrients that you wouldn't be available at the top, perhaps. Yes, absolutely. In fact, that's that's one of the the um, that's one of the, one of the problems with tillage is that when you when you're constantly running a plow or a rototiller, any any given piece of tillage equipment at the same depth, you're creating a what they call a plow pan, which is um, you, you know you're basically smearing over the the base of the soil uh, at at the same level over and over again. You can. Um, it, it, you can have a very uh, perceptible plow pan. In fact, I remember when I was working on on uh, on Virginia the, the the research farm at Virginia Tech, it had had a lot of tillage over the years because it, it, it I believe it had been a working farm in the past, and then then when the university bought it, they they had all kinds of uh, they had all kinds of agricultural experiments going on, and so. Um, it had been tilled a lot, and so when we would go out and transplant things occasionally by hand, I felt like I could just hear the tink. You know, when I stuck a, when I would try to stick a trowel in the ground, it would go down, you know, five inches or something, and it would just stop like at the same at the same spot all over the field, right? Because they had been running a uh, rototiller five inches down or whatever whatever they had been doing, yeah, and so so yeah, it's roots. You know, just the physical action of roots. That's a really good point. The roots roots can just grow more more quickly when they they are, um, the soil is not as compacted. All right, I'm gonna have to cut this one short here because Andrew still has a ton more to contribute to these topics, and our interview continues on for another hour. So stay tuned for next week's session and the conclusion of this definitive guide to no-till organic gardening. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. 
While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.